I'm Richard Fieldhouse and I'm with the National Association of Sessional GPs and welcome to the latest edition of our podcast, The Art of GP Locoming. And today I'm talking to Judith Harvey. Hello, Judith. Hello. Um, and we're going to talk about Judith's latest article on cannibalism, um, which uh, came out in our magazine, our February edition of the magazine, and is out now on our blog as well. So, Judith, thanks so much for putting this together. And what what made you put your pen to paper and, and start writing about cannibalism then? Well, it was the extraordinary experience of being in Tromsø, uh, at nearly 70 degrees north of the Arctic Circle and coming across the name of Carlton Gardichek that I hadn't thought about for decades uh, but had been very familiar with halfway around the globe, one degree south of the equator uh, in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Uh, he was an American virologist. He did the extraordinarily interesting uh, epidemiological study of the Fori people who had a very high incidence of what was called in their language kuru, which means the shaking disease. And he, it, it doesn't occur in non-Fori people, related tribes um, close by. Uh, it's just in that one people. And he worked out that what fitted with the incidents uh, was that there was in the bodies of people with Kuru, there was what was called then a slow virus or what he called a slow virus because it was slow to develop the symptoms. Um, and that this caused the Kuru and it was transmitted because the Fori people used to eat the flesh of their dead companions to hand on their strengths. The men got the muscle, the women got the scraggy ends, mostly the brain and bits. And that he hypothesized that the whatever caused the Kuru, the slow virus, was concentrated in, in the, the brain, spinal cord, which is why the women developed Kuru much more frequently than men. The only disease that was really known similar at that time was scrapie in sheep, which is called staggers, in, or was uh, among sheep farmers. Uh, now, of course, we know that his slow virus was a prion um, and that Kuru is related to CJD. Uh, but he got the Nobel Prize for that work, which was very interesting. Uh, unfortunately, when he went back to the States, he was convicted of a sexual offence, served his time in prison, and lived out the last eight years of his life. don't know how he came to choose Tromsø. Which is in Norway, this... isn't it? It's, it's, yes, it's well north of the Arctic Circle. I was there in November. Um, it's a nice town. Well, it's actually the capital of northern Norway, um, but not an easy place to live with all that darkness. Uh, but that's where he was. So that very strange 
experience of hearing this name in two places so separated yes. in yes. time and place and culture. Because so you, that's what you yourself were actually were working in Papua New Guinea for some time, weren't you? Back yes, in the time. yes. That was before I was uh, medically qualified. And I lived there and we had some friends who uh, were working in the Fori district and we went to stay with them for a few days and uh, saw, as I describe in the article, um, a, a guy with Kuru staggering, ataxic, shaking um, in the village. It was reckoned, and this seems to be a safe bit of uh, evidence, that when the missionaries came, uh, they discouraged eating people. And Karoo was getting less common and has now pretty well died out. Um, yeah, it was, it's, it's very distressing to see, as is any body who has severe ataxia and uh, general degenerative disease. There was, uh, there was a professor in Port Moresby who wondered whether people in Papua New Guinea were more prone to shaking diseases of various sorts, uh, including Parkinson's. Um, and I was asked if, uh, in my kind of visits around different parts of the highlands, if I could find out. Um, there was a one tribe in which a lot of people nodded their heads. Um, I didn't visit them, but uh, you know, there were people with Parkinson's, but I don't think there was any general um, predisposition. Um, and now, of course, we know about uh, prion disease. It all makes a, a lot of sense. So, so all, all of this is obviously is very much within living, working memory. Um, the, the fact that that, uh, um, uh, that that people ate, no, no, I, and I, I always thought that Kuru was 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 caught by eating their victims, but this is actually eating your own people, which is uh, which is which is which is interesting on on, on so many levels. I haven't appreciated that. Um, so, so uh, Colton Yetzvek, is that his name? The uh, the virologist. Well, I remember it being pronounced Garvicek. Garvicek. Uh, okay. I don't know. Yes, I don't know how he would have pronounced it, but that's what. <laughs> Garvicek. So he was a virologist. Did, did did he himself isolate the virus, or was this done more epidemiologically? It was done epidemiologically. Um, it was before that isolation was possible. Mm. This was sort of early 70s, as I remember. Um, he did take um, neuro, um, neuro, neurological tissue from people who had died of Kuru and um, injected it into chimpanzees or give it to chimpanzees, and they developed Kuru. So that was the kind of evidence that this was caused by something transmissible Gosh, it, um, it just seems to make that connection um you know to to, to 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 tiny particles and to make all these things without the the ability to actually isolate it through you know electron microscopy which was obviously wasn't around in those days it's particularly in papua new guinea to make all those leaps whether he was incredibly brilliant or whether there's some luck in there as well but it's um to to have done that so long ago in in terms of you know the evolution of science and progress, science and scientific progress. I'm just astounded that how, how what an amazing discovery he got, and hence the Nobel Prize as well. I guess in all of this. 
Yes, and uh, I seem to recall Koch, Koch's postulates from medical training, which were the three conditions necessary to uh, not to confirm, but to infer a transmissible cause of some illness. I'd have to look them up, though. <laughs> <laughs> but it's probably something related to being able to inject chimpanzees and waiting for them to develop the similar disease as well. <laughs> but isolating it to the nervous system, I guess, I mean, obviously, in some way, that, that makes sense. Um, so, so this is about uh, uh, fellow human beings within the last within the last century, last hundred years, and even possibly, even possibly, still today. Although it seems to be. Um, uh, through, edu- through through education, um, eradicating the uh, the rather dangerous practice of, of eating your relatives. I, I, mean, I assume in this case, this is about they ate their relatives rather than killed their relatives to then eat them. Um, and but in, in the article, you go through other kind of different scenarios within which the the process of eating human flesh goes on. But there are other reasons for it. This isn't. This is a, to do with ritual and belief. There are, but there are some other situations to do with survival and even, even aggression. So, so what did you come? What did you in your in your research? What did you come across there? Well, there are a great many uh, uh, reasonably validated uh, uh, events where people in desperate situations have broken the taboo on eating human flesh. Uh, Usually they have eaten the flesh of people who are suffering the same situation of starvation as they are, whether they were like uh, the Donna Pass people in California or uh, the football team uh, that crashed in the Andes. The rugby team, Um, yeah. They... They are usually, and the first the first step is to to use the bodies of dead people um, for your own survival, uh, and it. I think I, I suspect that m- most of us would be prepared to do that if if that was. Uh, necessary for our survival it's a deeply transgressive thing to do but if you're going to die if you don't most people would be prepared to do that (laughs) a lot of people would say oh oh, I wouldn't but would they if they would if the alternative were death very few of us will be forced to make that choice Um, and that's happened throughout time. It's undoubtedly happening now, if if only we knew it. Um, but there are certainly cases where people have been killed or allowed to die to provide a source of meat. I think I quote um, the mignonette, the um, the boat that uh, that was. Um, caught in a storm and the two of the survivors decided to kill the cabin boy they were in a lifeboat there were three three survivors four including the cabin boy the cabin boy was pretty ill he'd been drinking seawater i think probably um and two of the decided uh, survivors uh killed him to provide food uh they were convicted of murder 
Um, but there was a reasonable amount of public sympathy and they, their capital sentence was commuted and they were actually in prison only for a short time. Uh, but there are a lot of shipwrecks, people on rafts and like the Medusa, the, uh, the French, as that picture. Yes, the wreck of the Medusa. Um, they almost certainly ate dead people and they may well have killed them. Oh. But we don't, often we don't know. But yes, uh, that's, that's a, another step. And you um, mentioned that, the, the, the football team or the rugby team, whatever the sports team that, that crashed on the Andes. Um, the the they were known to have eaten uh, other uh, people who, who survived the initial crash. But but in that you mentioned that they had actually made the the, the people. I think all the people who uh, who crashed made a pact to say that if whoever died, they would uh, allow their bodies to be eaten so that the others could survive. And that then um, l later, uh, when obviously when they were then rescued, uh, were there was much less of a public outcry about cannibalism because because they knew it would it sort of been pre agreed. There was an agreement from um, from the, those who then got eaten. That's right, yes. Um, and it took a while to come out because it, it is shameful, people. It's not the sort of thing you bring up in a conversation, really, is it, yes, normally, yeah. a dinner party of all faces? What, a, what an enlightened thing the survivors did yes. uh, to those who had a hope of surviving. Um, and that certainly made a lot of difference uh, when it was understood, when, after the people were rescued, um, and it was understood, A, that those who survived it survived, uh, at least in part, by eating the flesh of their dead companions, but that that had been agreed by them all. And, and, this, and this taboo that, you, you, that, 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 that people are faced with uh, uh, in, in light of cannibalism, um, for, for any reason, obviously less less so if there's an agreement or it's for survival. But you mention um, the first sort of world maps. The the edges had pictures of monsters and of cannibals uh, associating uh, uh, the cannibalism with with being monstrous, um, but also savagery and 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 and, as, and, and the suggestion that we might have even made up. Uh, uh, in certain cases, that 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 savages were the definition of people who weren't um, modern modernized, as it were, were therefore savages, were therefore cannibals, and therefore we were allowed to subjugate and exploit them. Yes, and I, I suppose uh, there is no way of proving that. No. But a lot of the, if you look at the pictures, you no. Know, one-eyed uh, people with heads growing out of their chests and all the different uh, monsters. Uh, they are, they have no basis in reality. Um, who knows about the cannibalism? And who knows about the purpose of the cannibalism? But it, it made a good story. It, it was a justification for saying these people are savages and, and we're not savages, we're uh, cultured people and we can make them cultured. Um, that we have to subdue them and then we can take all their resources and all the rest of it. Um, but I think that's a, a reasonably recognised interpretation. 
and, and a very useful device for uh, for justifying col- colonialism in those days too. I should think. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And and also in so in in modern culture, then you've mentioned um, a few films. You've mentioned uh, Silence of the Lambs, which I still haven't got over, having watched that thirty years ago, and I don't think I've watched a avoided scary films ever since but that and, and also another film uh, towards the end of the article about soylent green yes uh now i saw that many years ago i think when it first came out more or less and uh, <laughs> that's another uh like like you silence of the lambs which i haven't seen one reason i haven't seen is that those awful dyspo- dystopian films i find so distressing um uh, yes, it was very chilling. Um, and I remembered the film, so I looked it up and was shocked to discover that it offered the, the scenario. It's set in two, 2022, <laughs> which is three years' time, in a world in which there are people are crammed into uh, a limited amount of space because of uh, climate change and pollution and overpopulation, uh, and they have been relying on plankton for food. Well, of course, there's a lot about uh, using plankton for food currently in the news mm. and insects and all the rest of it. Um, but the plankton's running out. What do you do then? Uh, and that last bit of the film, as I remember it, where Charlton Heston, who's playing a journalist, I think, um, whose investigation is dragged off by the authorities to silence him, and he he yells out, "Soylent Green is people." Ugh. <laughs> he's, um, oft, he's often at the end of films yelling out. He did that on Planet of the Apes as well, didn't he? Was that right? Have I got the right film? Um, I don't know. Okay, uh, so that wasn't obvious until the end, was it? No. No, it wasn't, as I remember. It is a long time since I saw it, and it's one of those films that I've tried to, kind of, in a sense, distance myself from the emotional impact of it. But yeah, uh, it's real enough. Yeah. It, it's it's the, the scenario of the film is one that, you know, is closing in on us. But is it, is now? It, I think what's almost surprising is there actually aren't more films about cannibalism, cannibalism. And maybe I just maybe I just don't move in those sorts of circles or sub- subscribe to those download services. But I don't I don't I don't really recall many. I think the probably the most recent one I saw was was, was about which was kind of a bit like the, the Soylent Green film was The Matrix. Did you watch The Matrix? Certainly the first. No, I, didn't. I think that is about. Um, well, well, I think it, it, in that that's again a dystopian film, but it, with uh, we're actually we're living in a computer program, and actually our physical human bodies are in some awful, terrible post-apocalyptic dystopian world in which we are all in machines, um, and what we are fed is, I believe, the the um, the 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 uh, the, by, the byproduct of decomposing other humans i think from my recollection of the film with through tubes um and 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 and, and it's but it's, it's this deconstruction right down to the very very basic level of humans being machines and in in the same way i guess that you know uh, uh, starving animals will eat each other without a sh- shadow or forethought uh, fish do it all the time um uh and uh, uh and, and it's that it's that um that that 
putting us down to the very that, that, that very very basic sort of cellular level that actually at the end of the day we are kind of food uh, and if you think about ourselves like that um, um, it, it becomes sort of almost like a, a like a logical absurdity which I think is what Albert Camus yeah. called it didn't he um, in terms of yeah this this just down to that such a basic level um but i'm not even sure if, if if films like that would actually then pass muster to go go through and then go onto the main screen i don't know um but it's a, it's a... It, it's so we are we are happy to you know we chew our fingers we eat our own skin you know um and we'll lick our own blood uh but Doing that to anybody else, cutting into another human being. I think we discussed this last time, the overcoming the reluctance to make that first cut uh, into another human as a surgeon. Um, and once you're inside, it's fine. But it, it, there's, it's cultural, but it's something about who we are. Um, it's more than culture because it's fairly universal, pretty universal, I think, this sacredness of the body. And it's the sacredness of the body, interestingly, that leads led the Fori people to eat their fellow citizens to preserve their strengths. Gosh, to get us yeah. back. Um, but if, I think if, if anybody's interested in... in cannibalism under extreme circumstances in the modern world I, the siege of Leningrad uh, is a you know that was terrible and Leningrad is not an easy city to live in long winters hard time um, and three years of siege uh, you know, people were just falling over and dying in the streets um, they'd be covered in snow and ice, and in the in the spring when it melted, there'd be all these bodies. Many of them had clearly been cannibalized. Some people were, I think, convicted of killing people for food, and a lot of people there was a lot of talk about that, um, and they, I think, were shot. Um, but. The eating of people who'd already died was treated reasonably sympathetically because it was a matter of survival. Um, if anybody's interested in the subject, there is a, what I think is a brilliant book by Brian Moynihan called Leningrad Siege and Symphony, and it's about uh, Shostakovich writing the Leningrad Symphony. But as a history of the siege and what it was like, um, it's fascinating chilling incredible recommended unimaginable not not a not a um i suppose quite a grueling read yes but there are um that people survived and supported each other and the leningrad symphony orchestra um collecting to rehearse the symphony and every time they had a rehearsal there'd be fewer people because you know, the flute player died um, and they just, some of them could, were so weak they could barely hold their instruments. They, they were so thin they wore all the clothes they could get, blankets to try and keep themselves warm even in quite reasonable weather. And it was very hard when they were that bony 
to sit for any length of time, um, that the determination to make this world live, uh, work, sorry, work, not world, this work, work live and be a message um, was so powerful. Um, so there is, there is uh, a kind of hope about humans and humanity in the book as well. And uh, the inhumanity was uh, those who were doing the siege and Stalin who had uh, shot most of the able people in his army and in uh, administrators in Leningrad and made the siege much worse. Oh. It's it's almost I suppose what's kind of almost surprising is that 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 there isn't in that sort of situation there were, cannibalism was almost sort of didn't become acceptable didn't become almost the norm um, when you think just how starving and how desperate and how many um, how many people died in in, in those situations uh, I mean I think we know from functional MRI scans that the brain starts to change even within twenty four hours of not eating. It start, different areas of the brain start to light up in response to different food and colour stimuluses, stimuli. Um, so to so to to be in that situation for weeks, months, years on end, um, um, yeah, to, to, uh, it's uh, it, the, the determination not to eat dead bodies when you're starving must be pretty severe as well. It's just uh, the definition of hell, isn't it? Yes, it is. I, I, I remember, I can't remember the details at all, whether it was a film or a book, something about a, uh, a spaceship going to Mars and there's a woman with a child. Whether she gives birth on the spaceship, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, they, in the end, years later, are, are rescued. And, we, um, and when the rescuers open the door of the spaceship, there's just this woman and the probably by that time grown up child nobody else in the spaceship and she sees these people coming in and she says look it's meat it's <gasps> a film worth watching i i can't remember i'll i'll, I'll try and chase it but i, I have no idea uh, well, if, any, if, if anybody's listening and they recognise that film, could they please leave it on the comments on, on the blog page uh, linked to from the podcast? Because it'll be out there. Looks like quite another one to add to the list. Well, Judith, that's been so interesting. Um, such a, uh, a, a an emotive subject and wide ranging and um, really lo lots to think about there. Uh, I now can't wait even more for what you're going to do with, uh, in your next article. Um, not wishing to raise expectations or anything, but um, always, always a really interesting read and always so much to think about. So thank you again um, and uh, look very much look forward to your next article. And uh, thank you listeners for listening to this podcast and for, 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 um, for, for uh, subscribing to the Art of GP Locoming podcast. Uh, you can subscribe to this on Apple iTunes and uh, Google and or other podcasting services. Uh, if you have any articles you'd like to contribute to the NESGP magazine, then please let me know and uh, look forward to uh, our next podcast. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, Judith. Bye-bye.